here today as a teacher, as a daughter of an immigrant, as a union activist, as a woman, but also as a graduate of Yale, the same university where men can yell, yes means no, no means anal, and still graduate into positions of power. Where men can rip down posters supporting survivors of sexual assault and continue to go to class. Where men can assault women at night and still be nominated for the highest position in our judicial system. I've spoken to a lot of teachers about being here today, and some are here. Thank you. Uh, for our students. One elementary school teacher in the mission told me, I teach my students every day that their words have power, that they need to use their words to solve problems, to use their words to tell other people how they feel and what they need, and that if they do that, it's the responsibility of the other person to hear them, to listen to them, and respect their needs. The behavior of Kavanaugh is the exact opposite. His nomination is teaching young people that the way to get what you want and get power is not to listen to others, not to respect their needs, but to ignore them, to abuse them, and to bully them. The confirmation of him into the Supreme Court shows our young people that they can be cruel, hurtful, and abusive, and there will be no repercussions. But this sea of people here sends the opposite message to our students. We say to survivors everywhere, we believe you. We say to the women of color who started this and the many movements, be it Stormé Delavere, Anita Hill, Tarana Burke, yes. the immigrant women cleaning staff who protested sexual assault right here in the <laughs> Alicia Garza, Patrice Collars, and Opal Tometi, the Marriott workers who are on strike right now. The McDonald's workers who are on strike against sexual assault, the first of its kind in the nation. Dr. Blase Ford, we say thank you. Thank you. We say to Brett Kavanaugh, you are a liar. liar. You are a sexist. Sexist And this seat is not yours. This, this seat, seat is, is not yours. We say to those in Congress and those in that White House that we are watching you too. Today, across the country, teachers are helping lead this resistance about the terrible working conditions that workers across the country face, including sexual harassment, including low wages, including high rent, including large class sizes. From West Virginia to Kentucky to Arizona to LA to Oakland, teachers are fighting back. Just yesterday in West Virginia, I encourage you to watch how West Virginia teachers and other survivors of sexual assault were arrested in Senator Manchin's office, a Democrat, a Democrat who is still considering voting for this liar, this sexist. We need more of these brave actions right across the country and right here in San Francisco. Here in California, there are 144 billionaires. 99% of them are men, with a total net worth three and a half times the entire state budget. We are 48th in the country in class size. Those are your kids. We are 43rd in per-pupil funding. Those are your kids. Mark Benioff, alone here in San Francisco, has a net worth of $6.7 And his company continues to build the infrastructure for ICE to tear families apart and deport We need to tax the class, the 1%, and we don't need to take donations. The teaching profession is 75% women, and I'm proud of that. This 
teachers in LA and Oakland and across California are standing together. We are saying we do not consent to these working conditions because these are not adequate learning conditions for our children. We are fighting for more than bread and butter. We are connecting our fights to fights for social justice. That's right. We say no to racism. We say no to xenophobia. We say no to Islamophobia. We say no to homophobia. And we say no to sexual assault and to sexism. We say yes to funding the schools our students deserve, and we say yes to women and survivors all over this country. We believe you. We stand up today, and we will rise up again to build a society free of sexual assault, free of rape, free of discrimination. A society all of our students, all people, deserve. Cancel Kavanaugh. That's right! everyone. Welcome to this episode of Too Long for Twitter. Erica and I are joined today by Stephanie and Amr from the Tech Workers Coalition. Welcome. Thanks for having us on. My name is Amr. Uh, I'm a volunteer with the Tech Workers Coalition. I'm a Google engineer. And I'm Stephanie. I'm a policy specialist at YouTube and really excited to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, our pleasure. Um, I guess in terms of, of kicking it off, what got you guys into organizing, maybe? I would be interested to hear your origin stories as much as you guys are willing to share. Mine is pretty brief. I can get it over with <laughs> quickly. Similar to a lot of tech workers and maybe a lot of millennials, the 2016 election hit pretty hard. And pretty much right after that, I started looking around for what are some groups that are interested in social justice, progressive topics? I wasn't even thinking of labor organizing at all. I was just looking for stuff more on the, the left side to find new friends, basically, and see if we could, I don't know, do something about it. So that's pretty much how I stumbled upon the Tech Workers Coalition and from there started learning pretty much for the first time about the impact of labor organizing and collective worker power. I got really excited about it. And now here I am as a volunteer. I think that's like a really exciting thing that I've noticed in a lot of people's like stories about how they got involved with this stuff is the the effect of like the moment of 2016. I don't know. Like I think crystallized stuff for a lot of people. So for me, Probably the galvanizing political moment of my lifetime was Occupy Wall Street. I was in uh, Kansas City at the time, and I went to uh, Occupy Kansas City and met some really interesting people there. And uh, so I've kind of been thinking about and taking action on these kinds of issues for a while. I moved out here recently for this job at Google, and uh, I heard about some of the things that were going on. I heard about the Tech Workers Coalition, and it, it didn't take me long to um, start getting plugged in. Nice. Um, I think another thing we want to do is just back it up. I think while for us in the industry, the tech won't build it moment has been on the front of a lot of our radars. But I think for people outside of the industry, the details of what's been going on might be a little bit more opaque. Um, so I was wondering if you guys could kind of provide a timeline of what's what's been happening with some touchstone moments. At least for me, 
what started it all was the open letter at Google. So um, there was an open letter going around. <laughs> open letter at Google. <laughs> <laughs> was that that guy who... The oh, white guy? No, not, oh, okay, not sorry. the Moore's memo. Sorry. Okay, let me clarify. <laughs> what what yeah. what <laughs> Okay, so what started off for me was the open letter to Sundar about uh Google shouldn't be in the business of war. Mm. And uh I oh. think that was late February or early March around that time. I saw lots and lots of my coworkers signing on to that letter and sharing it around. And there was uh, a lot of tumult uh inside the company. So from there, it was kind of a slowly rising pressure on the company. There was uh, support from outside groups, including Coworker.org and the Tech Workers Coalition, but also the uh, International Committee for Robot Arms Control. And uh, their petition, signed by hundreds and hundreds of academics, started making it more and more public, more and more of an issue. And then I think what kind of set it off was that it got to a certain point where there's almost 5,000 people who signed the petition in the company. Wow. And um, then we got this concession from the CEO of Google Cloud uh, saying that they're going to back down from the Project Maven contract and they're not going to pursue a renewal. So that was a really, really big deal. And that victory, I think, put a lot of wind in the sails of other employees in the tech industry who are hungry to take action on these issues of just like tech human rights abuse, but also other issues where tech is used in ways that actively damage people's lives. And then from there, there was a open letter from Microsoft employees uh, telling Microsoft to end its contract with ICE, followed by very shortly thereafter, Amazon employees telling their company to stop selling facial recognition to the police and actually to remove uh, companies that are doing business with ICE off of the Amazon cloud, which is pretty incredible. And then about a week later or so, Salesforce employees also penned a letter to their CEO, Benioff, Mark Benioff, to cancel Salesforce's contract with Customs and Border Protection and at that point, I mean, it was already kind of a whirlwind of things happening, but even then it wasn't the end of it. So we heard recently from McKinsey uh, Consultancy employees, this is a company that does a lot of management consulting. It's fairly prestigious, uh, and they do a lot of tech work with government agencies, that they pressured their company to actually pull out of their uh, business dealings with ICE. And then shortly thereafter, over 700 Deloitte employees uh, signed an open letter to their CEO to get them to pull out of their contracts with ICE. And then there's been actions at Microsoft and Amazon and, and most recently Accenture because they have like a 200 or $300 million contract with ICE or CBP to also put pressure on them. So it's kind of spread quite far. Yeah, it's definitely escalated. I think the interesting thread between these is its like relationship to what's happening politically. And I think the horrific things that have been happening on the border and people seeing how their work is related to that, I think, really like changed the climate a little bit. I don't know. That was just sort of my perception of, of how things were able to move so quickly, which I just thought was interesting. 
Yeah, I think a lot of tech workers recently have had that awakening or that light bulb moment to realize that what's happening out in the political world, uh, the family separation, the detention policies, uh, abuse by ICE, it's not just this thing that is neatly separated or it's neatly compartmentalized over here, right? It's not just something where going to a rally on Saturday <laughs> and then coming back to work and getting it off your mind is, is something that's possible. You know, you're finally waking up to the realization that your company has a contract, it has a relationship, it's building products that aid and abet human rights abuses, not just by ICE, but via the U.S. military, via law enforcement agencies, the police, people are starting to see that connection. And it doesn't feel great as a worker. So people are trying to run from that or stand up and face it. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, when you talk about, like, contracts with these different agencies or, like, a lot of this was coalesced around the hashtag, like, tech won't build it. Like, can you talk specifically about, like, what are you building? Like, what you mentioned, like, facial recognition software, but, like, Project Maven, like, what did that constitute? You know, what are these tech workers being asked to build? It's a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all bad. So pro- Project Maven was... Uh, bad things are so profitable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> Um, Project Maven was a project that was intended to uh, enhance drone surveillance. So military drones that are just literally sitting above cities 24-7 to be able to recognize objects more effectively, more efficiently. Oh, come on. Um, I, I heard it helps us to identify zebras in the in Africa. <laughs> um, that all it does? Yeah, that was one of the responses from... Uh, <laughs> the uh, leadership at Google about why this te- this technology is really innocuous. And oh, my God, dangerous. that's such a business. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was that technology. And then the facial recognition technology is also, it's known to have racial and gender biases. It's known to um, not only discriminate, but to perpetuate oppression on marginalized communities. A lot of the databases that this technology is built off of is already mm-hmm. uh, racially prejudice data, especially the predictive policing technology and things like that, um, which is supposed to help police departments determine who's going to you know, commit a crime, who's more likely to commit a crime, which is based on past police data. So, I mean, there's no surprise there why it's mm-hmm. incredibly racist and biased. <laughs> and, uh, and I just want to jump in ahead. here on the facial recognition piece. We often hear as a proposed solution that, hey, you know, there's a problem that the facial recognition software doesn't do a good enough job at recognizing maybe black faces or Asian faces. And we should work on that problem. We should make it so that everyone's faces are identified equally. But that's really not the answer to the problem. We should be looking at the design from an ethical and social justice lens. Like maybe this technology should not be used to be causing harm to those most marginalized communities. Maybe we shouldn't be building it at all. <laughs> those are the, the questions that um, tech workers are starting to ask in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And it's on the border as well. So there's another company, I'm going to butcher it, Anduril, I think. Anduril, yeah. Anduril, yeah. All, all of the worst like tech companies have Lord of the Rings names, which is just like... <laughs> 
I don't know why. Like, why? Like, Palantir, Andril, it's like, mm-hmm. if it has a Lord of the Rings name, you know, just immediately, it's it's bad news. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it ruins the series. Mm-hmm. And then there's a lot of just um, custom software that's being built on the clouds of these tech companies, which is basically their online services. So they will build custom software on their cloud to help those agencies administer their actions more effectively. And a lot of these actions are just straight-up human rights abuse, like child abuse, things of that nature. And in the Salesforce case specifically, the software that they're licensing out to CBP is for uh, recruitment and hiring and tracking candidates and stuff. So that's, you know, not something that is directly separating a child from their parent at the border, but it is helping to recruit and grow the ranks of this agency. And it is a way that Salesforce and other companies are benefiting directly financially off of these policies. Yeah, one of, I think it was Microsoft's response was that the technologies that they're licensing to ICE are not directly involved in child separation and therefore they're not under, they shouldn't feel morally obligated to stop that contract. But I think that totally warps how these agencies function. Like there are massive bureaucracies that keep the programs that do separate children from their families running. And all of that runs on, you know, email calendar, mm-hmm. cloud services, that's all connected. And just because yeah, your product absolutely. isn't racially targeting somebody yeah. in and of itself, it's upholding that entire department and system. And Mark Benioff replied to the demand to drop the CPP contract by saying, oh, don't worry, they're a customer of ours and they follow our term of service. They follow our TOS. <laughs> like, How can you say that? They follow your TOS when they're causing a pregnant woman to have a miscarriage? Is that really what's going on here? We're fine with that as long as they don't, you know, make some fraudulent claim on the software itself. Mm -hmm. We have to ask bigger questions here. We have to ask the tough ones. Yeah, I think we also have to hold them accountable for making millions of dollars off of the contracts with these agencies. I 100% agree with what Stephanie is saying. Trying to narrowly focus on a single issue is just a classic prevarication from these types of leaders um, and trying to trivialize what's at stake here. And it's, you know, the lives of children, the lives of families, and them profiting off of that. Yeah, I feel like with the Salesforce thing specifically, you know, like the the staffing issue, what I'm seeing is that people are understanding that it's employees and workers that make things happen, Um, which seems obvious when you say it, but sometimes it just feels like things just happen because Mm -hmm. they're happening. And clearly, you know, like tech workers are understanding that, you know, like if we don't build this software, it won't be used. And same thing, you know, if they can't hire more ICE agents, then, you know, ICE won't exist. Or if they have a harder time recruiting for like Border Patrol agents, things like that. Um, And I feel like that's maybe a shift in thinking, whereas before, you know, it was more more of a nebulous kind of activism, you know, that just this is a bad thing, but now it seems like there's a focus on, like, this is how we can stop it by, like, focusing on the workers that are doing the things. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, we're, tech workers are starting to realize that they do have power to actually affect moral outcomes and to fight for racial justice and social justice and to make all of these agencies and these tech companies work for good instead of just for profit. With this activism, the tech worker activism, 
there's been sort of a marriage of workplace-centered activism and political activism that I think we haven't seen in a long time, especially in the United States. And I was wondering if you guys had any ideas about why these like more political concerns are what are driving the workplace activism in the tech sector. Going back to how I got into organizing in the first place is, for as long as I can remember, I've been engaged in reading the news and in politics and in doing phone banking and canvassing for candidates and stuff, I think a lot of us joined the tech industry uh, precisely because we care about issues in the world. We care about making a positive impact on the world, making it a better place. And the tech industry screams at us saying, come join us. Uh, We'll give you what you're looking for. We'll help you to make that impact that you see. Right. So I think the industry attracts a certain kind of person and like millennials in general. We've seen the reports that they're very politically engaged and engaged in their communities. And, you know, I think the logical next step is that this group will be more vocal on the job. Why not? Once we start to see the connection between those issues that we cared about before we entered the workforce. And what's happening now that we're in it and our hands in it, that just sounds logical to me. This has also been kind of a long time coming. So the extreme disparity in American society, the like intense inequality, the fact that several people are struggling just to survive, just to like have three meals a day, just to pay their rent and their bills and have a place to live compared with the massive and massive and massive concentration of wealth in this country that's been going on for years and years and years has led to a lot of kind of resistance and high profile dramatic action. And I think we're just like one chapter in a long story that includes the teacher strikes recently. That's included the fast food workers going out on strike and the retail workers um, that's included Occupy Wall Street and lots of other things. And I think maybe why these issues are coming to the forefront in the tech industry are because the damage that they do is very, very clear in the current moment. A lot more clear than some of the other issues that we know we have to deal with, like automation and privacy and things like that, even though those are coming to a head as well. Seeing children being ripped from their families and talking about military weapons technology even if right now it's just surveillance but you know being in that kind of um, sphere has caused a lot of people to want to take action to echo what stephanie was saying this mantra of we're not just like any other industry we actually care about people and we are working together in a shared interest it's something that a lot of industries wish they could get away with to pretend that the interest of the billionaire class is aligned with everyone else. And that's starting to crumble now. And you can't have a slogan like, we bring people together and help connect people and things like that. Well, nothing disconnects people more than military technology, things that are designed to kill or designed to imprison. Yeah, can you guys talk a little bit more about that kind of tech ideology, you know, and like maybe how that, language or ideology is mobilized by your bosses, you know, that like we're all in this together. But also I'm wondering like what your coworkers think. I feel like I hear a lot of people talk about the tech industry 
And there's this idea that, like, even if you're just just an employee, you think that one day you'll be the CEO. Like, there's all this, like, startup culture. Like, one day I'll be the next Steve Jobs, whatever. Or, like, you get a share of the stock. So, like, you're also, you know, part of the owning class, whatever. So I'd just like to hear more about, like, what the workplace culture kind of has to say about this activism. Because I obviously there's tech workers that are super down for it, but I can imagine there's a lot of people who are, you know, like, why are you complaining? Why are you rocking the boat? Classic workplace stuff. Um, or even like, I think this is good, you know, like I want to be a part of this. Just the fact that you can say, obviously, there are tech workers who are down for this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have a very skewed perspective because <laughs> Kristen's my best friend. So. No, but that's great. I think for a long time that hasn't been a general perception. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And especially when Kristen and I first moved here, like before we were members of the ISO, before the Tech Workers Coalition really existed, like people would like say stuff or like... Kristen had this like series on her Instagram of like all the graffiti at her Google bus stop. Um, mm-hmm. And like, you know, in some ways I'm like sympathetic because it feels really, you know, as someone who like, if I can get like a free bagel after like a conference meeting, whatever, I feel lucky. So like in some ways I get it that it's like, fuck your bikes and all your free food and like your yoga classes, like you're, you know, there's like a lot of hostility. <laughs> yeah. So I understand that, but also, you know, Yeah, I think understanding tech workers as workers, you know, Kristen sometimes will has talked about like the rate of exploitation. Um, Why are you making this face? (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, tech workers can maybe have a large paycheck, but compared to what fucking, you know, Benioff is making, it's the, the rate is still quite stark. And there's, like, yeah, the coercive aspect of all of those, like, free things. You know, like, when I was working at Google, I ate breakfast there and I ate lunch there. And I also would just stay for dinner because I'd stayed for dinner the rest of the week. I had zero food at my house. I should just wait and take the 7 p.m. shuttle and get some more stuff done. You know, like, there there is, like, nothing that they give you for free is for free, right? Like, there's an intent behind it and they'll – it basically comes back to, like, the mm-hmm. old, you know – if it isn't something we won, we don't want it, you know, like there's there's a reason why they do this. Um, but that's sort of distracting a little bit from your original question. I'm super interested what Stephanie and Amr, you guys have to say about what what the climate is like there now. Yeah, so I think the history of the tech industry is really fascinating. I really encourage folks listening to the podcast to go read my old college advisor's book from Counterculture to cyber culture. I think Fred Turner's book is, uh, has that title. But it talks about the origins of kind of techno-utopianism, techno-libertarianism, where, you know, despite the fact that the internet was an R&D project from the U.S. military <laughs> made to help with military goals, it was a collaboration between the academic community and the military and folks designing that early technology were really idealistic about the possibilities of this wild, open internet where anything was possible, where you could be yourself in the internet and not be held down by things like like money, like your, your physical body and circumstances, by you know, laws or government. And you start going into, oh, you can't be held down by any government or laws, then you start to get into trouble. But, you know, that's not the point. The history of that ethos 
has carried through definitely through to today in how the tech company open office plans are, how the hierarchy seems to be flatter because you can walk around and see everyone that you work with. The CEO chooses intentionally to usually dress in a more casual way, in a hoodie and jeans, right? And they're on the younger side. So I think those little visual cues that we see now are very, very intentional in distracting workers in particular and the, the public at large, distracting them from the fact that the tech industry is not an exception. It's just an industry like all the others. And as it matures more in time, as these companies start to get involved in the activities that other more mature industries have, such as working with the government, working with the military, as they grow older, people are starting to wake up to that facade. Hi, this is Too Long for Twitter. You can find us on twitter.com at too fucking long. We're also on iTunes and Patreon. If you have time, we'd highly encourage you to hit that subscribe button, give us those stars, and if you want to, please donate to our Patreon. It helps us keep producing this show. We'll be right back. What do your coworkers kind of think about those kind of superficial things? Like, are they like... Oh, I forgot that part of the question. Like, is it, you know, oh, it's so cool that whatever, Mark Zuckerberg dresses however the fuck he dresses. Um, or like, do people see through it? I don't know. Like, it's really cool that Mark Zuckerberg has the haircut that he has. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people do and a lot of people don't. Uh-huh. And it depends on the thing. Like, the free perks are pretty much just unanimously yeah. liked. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to like that. Yeah. Um, but some things like, yeah, the the billionaire wearing a hoodie and sneakers, all other people see through that. Yeah. They're just like, that's like, that doesn't make you humble just because you dress like that. Um, like, hmm, and it's the same hoodie every day. Sounds <laughs> suspicious. I have another question. Sorry, I have so many questions. Okay. So today on the drive here, I was listening to KQD, and they were talking about Google getting some big fine from the EU and they brought up the the Cambridge Analytica thing and when that happened I didn't really care um to be honest but I'm wondering like is that something that tech workers do you see that as part of this timeline of like tech things happening the or Cambridge Analytica scandal in particular yeah yeah like I mean it doesn't necessarily connect to tech won't build it but I think maybe for the general public, the facade around tech is starting to crumble and people are getting kind of hostile towards it. Like I think Mark, you know, polls or whatever of Mark Zuckerberg's likableness are like, you know, people fucking hate him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The Cambridge Analytica thing definitely drove his likableness down, but he also kind of just has this vibe that you're like... (laughs) He's kind of creepy. <laughs> the vibe of somebody who like bought the four houses around his house and demolished them all. That sort of vibe. <laughs> the vibe of a billionaire psychopath. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Is that something people talk about? 
just quickly, I, I, on my last job, GDPR, which is, I, I didn't listen to the KQD story that yeah. you're, you're talking about, but I'm assuming that they're getting fined because of GDPR, which is, uh, got put into effect about a, a month, a month and a half ago in the EU around uh, data privacy and consent. Mm-hmm. I think the fine is actually because of uh, Android uh, oh. monopolizing the market. Yeah. It was, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's an different. Antitrust fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay. Antitrust. That's interesting that they pulled in the Cambridge Analytica thing because that, that's kind of why I thought it might be a GDPR thing because that was very much related to data and privacy. Um, I guess from, from my perspective, people I've talked to in the industry who've been like mostly like down with things, I think it's been a lot of people got into tech, or at least I know I got into tech because I basically had been raised online. Like I was very much bought into the ideas of the techno-utopian vision that the internet was somehow inherently controversial or inherently disruptive to use like a very, you know, a word that the mainstream tech industry likes to use a lot. And because of that, it had like, it was inherently democratizing. And my politics have changed a lot, but as like in my early 20s, late teens, that's kind of how I was thinking about technology. And I think seeing, especially working in the industry, seeing this sort of California ideology and the rhetoric around tech start to crumble and seeing the technology you're building being used for ICE and locking up children and and facial recognition that inherently has a racial bias And I think there's also the more banal things like seeing how, you know, fake news has been able to take off. I mean, I think there's things to piece apart there with what is actually fake news. And I think the whole Russia thing has definitely monopolized the mainstream media in a distracting way. It's mostly smoke and no fire. And I'm still sort of confused about what its purpose is. Yeah. But I think same. If anyone could tell me who. Paul Manafort is and what he d- I don't know who he is <laughs> who is who are any of these people I don't understand <laughs> my mom is gonna be so mad when she hears that because to her this is like the thing you know anyway sorry yeah I think that and then also like hate speech on like seeing how Nazis are able to use Twitter to organize is terrifying and that they're not being ba- like the terms of service don't seem to apply to Nazis I think there's a lot of things to pick apart about how tech is being used and it can be really alienating to people that got into the industry maybe on naive reasons, but for making the world a better place or, or something like that, you know. Sorry, I kind of just yeah, no, I think, I think getting digressed. Or working in it and seeing all the stories that are coming out, you can't help but realize that it's just a tool like any other. And you have to ask, who is it designed by? Who is it designed for? What's the main incentive that keeps it running? If it's profit, this is what you're going to get. If it's not a public good, if it's not a resource that everyone has unconditional access to, then this is what you get. Right? We're seeing that play out. It's not pretty. Absolutely. I think that's what it boils down to. To piggyback on that, if you look at how this technology is implemented so it's not just the issues that it creates because it's not like these companies aren't being stewards of their own technology but it's also especially like artificial intelligence and a lot of the things that are kind of getting into the limelight right now and the industry itself it's built on the backs of a ton of exploited workers 
So you do have the like high paying tech engineers on one end, but they're actually just a part and probably not that big of a part of the industry as a whole because you have a ton of tech adjacent workers. Some of those are actually temporary workers, even the project managers and designers and things like that. And then underneath that, you have like vendors and contractors that are doing all kinds of maybe tech adjacent work, maybe just kind of regular office work, things like that. And then you have subcontracted and service workers as well, like the cafeteria workers and the bus drivers and janitors and security guards and all the people that, you know, fulfill the snack pipeline, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then you have the workers in the, what's it called? Stephanie, what's it called? The workers that do the tagging of the, what's on YouTube and Facebook and things like that in the warehouses. You know what I'm talking about? Is she still there? Stephanie? Oh, hello. hello. Hi. Hi. Hey. Oh, I was on mute. <laughs> <laughs> I was like yelling all of these words. <laughs> <laughs> right. So those are, you're talking about the content moderators. Yes. Yes. Are those the people that like watch those yeah. horrible videos yes. of like, oh my yes. God. Yes, exactly. Ugh, There's a huge like... workforce of that. And so, so all of that AI work that these companies are talking about, have huge workforces of people who just look at pictures and tag them or look at videos and tag them and things like that to feed the AI machine. Mm -hmm. So it's actually not just a couple of dudes in lab coats or sitting in front of computers that say, oh, I'm going to write a little bit of AI and it's going to be so smart and do all these things. There's actually three things that need to happen for the AI that these companies keep talking about to exist. One is it absolutely has to exist on a huge surveillance apparatus. Without all of the surveillance on how we talk, the pictures we take, the videos we watch, where we go, etc., you cannot have enough data to feed the AI machine to make it smart enough to classify all the things it needs to classify. Yeah. And then on, and on top, top of that, go ahead. How do you get your how do you get your Amazon package in the same day on the backs of workers running around in a warehouse with no breaks who can't even go to the bathroom. Workers have died in the warehouse, Mm -hmm. right? All so that someone can get their package as fast as humanly possible. Mm -hmm. How do you get your Uber to show up within seconds? Because people are driving around in, you know, communities hours and hours away from where they actually live just to try and make a few cents or a few dollars. The fares keep going down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do you get your Instacart groceries? Mm-hmm. It's people like running around Whole Foods mm-hmm. and then running around Oakland and Berkeley trying to find yeah, your stupid yeah, house. I, <laughs> I, I did Instacart for a little bit last summer and it was the worst. I hated it so much. Um, I'm sure. But yeah, so there's a whole the logistic part of it kind of. All of this tech runs on hardware. Where is that built? Like mm-hmm. there are people being paid cents in mines in Africa pulling out these rare minerals from mm-hmm. the earth and like super exploitative extraction industries and then that's being shipped around the world and in these massive like city-like factories in china being Mm -hmm. assembled in just really dismal conditions and then we haven't even gotten to the blockchain guys (laughs) (laughs) is that bitcoin yeah using like more electricity than something i forget the stats but then like some states all those servers and computers that are mining bitcoin (laughs) <laughs> it takes up so much energy and resources to run something that appears to the normal public to just be invisible, to just happen in thin air. 
but none of it's true. The second thing that is required for this machine is what we've been talking about, which is a massive amount of cheap like an exploited labor. Mm-hmm. All of this takes like actual human labor that is exploited every single day, that's paid very little, that has no benefits, that has no job security. Um, and people can see the damage that that does to people's lives, um, like what's happening in the Bay Area with displacement and people not being able to afford to live, even though they work multiple jobs and things like that. And I think the third thing that has to exist for this to to continue is a really consolidated tech power because you can't control all of that data and all of those workers unless you have these huge companies like we do that have a ton of money like apple has more cash reserves than like most governments have gdp or something they have like over a trillion dollars in cash reserves bezos is what worth 150 billion Mm dollars now all those three things have to come together to like keep this machine running and it's not going to cede control in and of itself it's like any other power structure in history right they're going to keep amassing wealth they're going to keep consolidating power they're going to keep exploiting people unless we stand up and do something about it thinking about the cash reserves is that kind of what's contributing to this tech bubble that it's like you have this app idea i happen to you know i have all this fucking money i guess i'll give you a million dollars for your dumb app <laughs> sorry i'm like ragging on these apps but a lot of them are rag, rag on the apps yeah. please um <laughs> Go scooters <for> yeah <laughs> fucking scooters <laughs> is that kind of where this tech bubble is coming from that there's all this wealth and people mm-hmm. with all of these ideas hoping they'll be Hoping they'll be the next Uber, but isn't Uber not even profitable? Like, it all is so smoke and mirrors. The massive amount of wealth and the liquidity of that wealth definitely feeds into the venture capitalist model and what it takes for a venture capitalist to be profitable. You know, like, there's just a lot of consolidating of different ventures that they have that so it doesn't really matter if many of the the things they fund go under um they just need to have one that makes it it's all risk driven it's and it's it's just interesting that instead of some of it's being put into like productive investment but oftentimes like what we're seeing with why bitcoin was able to blow up is that there's so much capital and and relatively or so much liquid capital and relatively few places to invest it profitably so you're seeing a lot of it some of it gets put into companies that are actually building things, um, whether that's software or um, hardware or, or whatever. And then other s- things are just being pushed into to speculation to try to get a, a quick turnaround. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about how the unprofitability is actually more profitable for some of these companies? I think that's interesting and is something that doesn't really get talked about that much. We can talk about it a little bit. Um this is, I'm not an expert on this stuff at all. My hunch is like, if you have a company like Uber that's valued so highly, but doesn't make money, constantly breaks the law, is known mm-hmm. for having a toxic work culture. <laughs> um, I think you have to start asking the question is like, why do very, very wealthy people keep pumping money into this company? It either one, they think at some point in the future, it'll become really profitable and they'll get very rich, which is entirely possible. But as the time goes on, that's not happening. Or two, there's other reasons why they are propping up a company like this that is known for these things, like not making money, breaking the law, and having like a really bad work environment. And I think at that point, you know, 
what I see that the value that Uber is really providing for very wealthy people is the destruction of markets that already had unions and workers' rights. Even if they were weak, even if they were kind of on, on the decline, it's kind of like the nail in the coffin on the taxi industry, a way to... This industry uses the word disrupt really to mean a uh, hostile destruction of an entrenched industry to try to make it even more laissez-faire than it was before. Wow, that's a really good point. I've never thought about it like that, but that's very true. And I think it goes hand in hand with the former hunch, right? Like if you're able to disrupt that entrenched industry, that does open up more vehicles for profit. And mm -hmm. in in this era of neoliberalism, we're seeing decreased spending in, in just the public sector in general and public infrastructure is a huge one. So I think with, you know, getting on BART to get here is just like always a fucking disaster. And that's mm -hmm. just going to crumble and erode more and more. And mm -hmm also will increase profitability, I think, without yeah. a change politically. Yeah. And, you know, as Uber becomes more and more efficient and more and more dominant and more of those technology or bespoke solutions start to be used, especially by the, the millennials here in the Bay Area, just as an example, you talk to them about public transit or about just public social services in general, and they're like, the government can't get anything done. Of course, it's going to take the private sector. The private sector is the only one giving me a, a shuttle bus or a chariot that meets my standards that I want to use. You know, Uber is the only option for giving me the kind of transportation that, that I want, the quality, right? You know, what do they mean by quality? Our memories are very short and our logic is very limited <laughs> that these apps and these technology companies are disrupting in a hostile way, just like Amr said, and making it impossible for a government-sponsored or community-developed option to even have a chance at working and showing what it can do. So that just makes us spiral even further down. <laughs> yeah, and I think you see what happens when these industries get disrupted. Like, you know, there are these taxi drivers who are like, you know, committing suicide because they like can't yeah. pay their fucking bills and they have this skill that there's no market for anymore. And I don't know, it's just really fucking bleak. But there's hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, you know. Um, because hashtag tech won't build it. Yeah, yes. yeah. Can you just talk a little bit, you know, to kind of circle back to what we were talking about at the beginning and what is the landscape looking like going forward? You know, are you guys feeling optimistic? I mean, I know right now Tech Workers Coalition is only in a few cities, but tech workers seem to be organizing themselves all over the country. I'm really hopeful. I'm really optimistic. Uh, TWC is about to launch chapters on the East Coast, I hear. Thanks, <laughs> Kristen, for your involvement <laughs> that. And that's super encouraging uh, to know that tech workers are starting to see the example that's been made by the tech companies standing up to like government contracts and to ICE. And employees are more importantly are starting to just turn to their coworker and talk about things that are happening in their office, things that they're experiencing, talking about their pay, talking about working conditions and harassment. All these issues are connected, and none of them has been addressed because no one's talking about it and no one realizes the power there is 
in talking to your peers and coming up with solutions from the ground up. But as that message spreads uh, with a little bit of a help and a nudge from TWC, oh man, I'm so excited for what's going to come out of that. Yeah, me too. A um, couple of things that I'd like to say is, especially for other tech workers that are listening or just workers in general that want to do something about all this stuff, I'm just a level three Google engineer, which is actually the entry level. So I'm not like a senior staff engineer. I don't have any cloud at the company, but I was still able to take action with a lot of my coworkers to get something done. And I think the takeaway is that it's going to take all of us to make this happen. And that's one of the things I like about the Tech Workers Coalition and just a lot of other groups that we've been working with where people from the community and workers are coming together is that we're going to have to figure this out together. I don't have the answer. I don't think anybody else has the answer, especially by themselves. And the way that the tech is going to be used, if how we can figure out to build tech for human benefit or to just make this industry treat its workers better and make sure all the jobs are good jobs in this industry. It's going to take all of us to figure that out and to make it happen. And nobody is going to do it for us. The companies aren't going to do it for us. The CEOs are clearly not going to do it for us. The politicians are definitely not going to do it for us. So I think it's going to be up to us to make it happen. Yeah, I'm also feeling optimistic. Yeah, if you're a tech worker listening to the show and you are interested in getting involved with tech worker organizing on the East Coast, uh, yeah, slide into my DMs. I'll put you in touch with the peeps. <laughs> um, I guess that's my plug. Um, getting organized with coworkers and other people in my industry and getting organized politically with other people that share my politics has just been such a, like, I can't imagine my life any differently now. It's just changed fundamentally everything about my life in in such a positive way so the more that happens that's how we really change the world into something that we want to live in and not this like bleak bleak picture that we see today yeah we come into work every single day and make the visions of these billionaires a reality we should be coming into work and making our visions and our community's visions a reality yeah because there are problems that could be solved by technology like the DMV, for example, <laughs> why well, do you need to be there for six hours? But you know, there there are there are needs, and right, and like this, you know, each according to their ability, to each according to our need. There are needs that need to be met, but instead, we're launching another fucking scooter app. And so, you know, what could the world look like if workers themselves are in charge of choosing what we make and how we make it and who we get to work for? And I just want to point out that the Tech Workers Coalition and all these different kind of iterations of tech activism are not happening through unions. That's only to say that, like, if you're not unionized, that doesn't mean that you can't be an activist in your workplace. And it doesn't need to be specifically going on strike, although strikes are awesome. It could be like sending an article about something happening in your industry or, you know, um, Casey, our producer, was like reading a book with her coworkers. Like, I think there are so many different opportunities for people to start getting in touch with the people in your lives that share your politics in your workplace and thinking about what is my industry's relationship to capital? Like we've been talking about tech work, but there's an opportunity for everyone. If you have a job or even if you don't, I think there's a place for you to like join the fight. And if you take action, we got your back. This is risky. It can be scary. But when you're together, like, 
and you have people that have got your back in a really real way, that changes everything, I think. Yeah, feeling really happy to have my my tech friends in TWC, my comrades in ISO. <laughs> it's good. I'm so happy I met all of you. Aww. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Uh, this together. is the, the cuddly part of yeah. the <laughs> Thanks for listening to Too Long for Twitter. You can find us online on twitter.com at too fucking long. We are also on SoundCloud. If you like the work that we do and you want to support it so I uh, don't have to I don't know hustle as much that'd be sick Um, we're on patreon.com you'll get access to the exclusive subscriber only special person content which of course you don't want to miss it it's good it's that good shit I didn't know about that I need to get on it right now yeah Yeah, Stephanie it's perfect (laughs) I want to be a super fan aww tell me how woohoo This episode was produced by our lovely producers, Josh and Casey, here at the legendary KPFA in Berkeley, California. Nice try, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) What timeline are we in? This is crazy. The bad one. The bad, yeah, the worst one. The bad one. (laughs) That's to get darkest before the dawn. (laughs) Aww. Um, Josh, you need us to do some billboards, right? Some more official. That was actually why I jumped in and then realized halfway through that I wanted to hear something else. Yeah, I wanted to bring up Elon Musk at some point, but I forgot. I fucking yeah, I'm glad we got through the episode without him, actually. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, actually really yeah, good. Fuck him. Fuck him. God, I fucking hate him. <laughs> and Grimes, like, what is she doing? Grimes. Grimes is the bad kind of class traitor. That's all I have to say. <laughs>